0: I invite you to turn to Mark, chapter 14. As we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, in the early, early chapters, Jesus's ministry was focused far north of Jerusalem in Galilee. And and that's where most of his ministry took place, up through Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus began to move south toward the region of Judea. And at the end of chapter 10, he's passing through Jericho, and at the beginning of chapter 11, drawing near to Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus knows that he has an appointment in Jerusalem, where he is going to offer the perfect sacrifice. And for the last few chapters, Jesus has been interacting with the religious leaders and his disciples in the, in the shadow of the great temple there in Jerusalem. And now as we turn to Mark chapter 14, the time of the sacrifice is drawing near. This morning, I'd like to read Mark chapter 14, verses one through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be enabled to enter into the riches of this passage. Father, we pray that we would, as it were, be sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him and observing what he himself calls a beautiful deed. Draw us near to Jesus during this hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the passage begins, the, the the setting, with this great Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread just a couple days away. We don't need to go into a lot of detail about that in this particular sermon. We'll have opportunity uh, to look at that more next week. But this is... This is one of the holiest times of the year for the Jews. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the occasion when they remembered the redeeming grace of God, when he rescued them out of the land of Egypt. And so Jews from all over would would come to Jerusalem on an annual basis in order to celebrate this great festival. And remarkably, during this time when they ought to have been thinking about the grace of God and the the redemption and the saving power of the Lord and his mercies to them, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the religious bigwigs, they're thinking about how to carry out their murderous plot. We know that there's been this adversarial relationship between the religious leaders and Jesus over the last few chapters. We, we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, this is after Jesus critiqued the temple. Because what was supposed to have been a house of prayer for all the nations had been corrupted and turned into a den of robbers. And the religious leaders didn't like that critique, and it says in Mark 11:18, "And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy him. And then in chapter 12, Jesus told the, the parable of the tenant farmers, in which he was, again, he, he, was, he was critiquing the religious leadership because instead of proving to be faithful and offering up their fruit to, to the vineyard owner, to God, instead they were unfruitful and unfaithful. And so Jesus spoke this parable against the religious leaders. And it says in chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him. And then in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So there's this adversarial relationship and they are seeking his demise. They, they, were, the, they were at the center of Jewish religious life and the Jewish religious institutions. They had their traditions, their power and influence and Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And as it turned out, these religious leaders had hearts that were far from God. And Jesus didn't play by their rules. And so they wanted to eliminate him. And they wanted to arrest him, it says, by stealth. By craft. By deceit. By sneakiness. They, 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 they didn't want to do it out In the open, in public, because Jesus was popular with the people, and so they couldn't just do a frontal assault and arrest because then they would risk an an uproar from the people, a great disturbance, and that would be a big problem. So they they needed to do it under the cover of darkness, and that's how this passage begins, and that. That storyline, their plotting and scheming resumes in verse 10. Enter Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. He's the answer, so to speak, to their need to arrest Jesus by stealth. Because Judas is an insider. He has access to Jesus and the 12. He, he, can, he can follow their movements and he can, he, can, he can tell the religious leaders the time and the place in private when they can arrest Jesus. And, and the meaning of betray, by the way, I, I, I know w- w- the connotation of, of betrayal is, is treachery. And of course, Judas is treacherous, but the, but the actual meaning of, of the word translated betray simply means to hand over. Okay, so so Judas agrees to be the 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 informant, the insider who's going to to bring the religious leaders to that private scene where Judas can hand over Jesus to them so that they can carry out their plot. The religious leaders were thrilled about Judas's defection. And the passage ends with Judas seeking an opportunity to betray the master. Now, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the outer story of our passage, verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And before we leave that outer story, it's worth issuing a, a lesson and, and a warning from this. What you see here is that you have these religious leaders, these guardians of Israel's religious life, these these students of the law, theologians, teachers, as well as Judas, and they, they had access to holy things. They had access to the holy traditions that had been passed down through the ages, that that God had given to his people, Israel. They had access to the scriptures. They mingled with holy things. And in the case of Judas, he spent time in the presence of the Holy One. You can be very religious. You can be very religious in an orthodox doctrinal context and have a heart that is far from God and the question is, is has, your, has your heart been transformed do you have a heart for God do, do, do you have a, a warm hearted devotion to the Lord and to his kingdom because if you don't sooner or later Your true colors will show. So that's the outer story. And and there's this stunning contrast between the murderous plotting and treachery of the religious leaders and Judas. There's a great contrast between that and this holy moment of worship that unfolds in verses 3 to 9. Verse 3 says, while he was at Bethany, Bethany is just a hop, skip, and jump from Jerusalem. In fact, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 11, we're told that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And then at the end of verse 11, it tells us that he went out to Bethany with the twelve at at night. that he, He lodged in Bethany. And then the next verse, chapter 11, verse 12 says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany... So Jesus is is spending daytime in Jerusalem and nighttime in Bethany, just a couple miles from Jerusalem. And Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Not long ago in Bethany, the Lord Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. And that created quite a stir. And many people believed in him on account of the resurrection of Lazarus. And so Jesus had some fame in Bethany. And what is envisioned here in verses 3 to 9 is a dinner party with mainly disciples and friends gathered together to honor the Lord. It says that it took place in the house of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon the leper. Perhaps the earliest readers would have known who it was referring to. Quite possibly this man, Simon, had had leprosy in the past and had subsequently been healed and was now able to host this dinner party. And and that's what it is, a dinner party, and they're, 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 they're sitting around the table enjoying this meal, and then something remarkable happens. It says, still in verse 3, that a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And I just want to pause there, because the costliness of this ointment is really important to understand if we're going to understand this passage. This ointment of pure nard uh, would have would have come from the spike nard plant, which was native to India, and uh, perhaps was able to be grown in other places as well. But notice, just just skip ahead to verse five. And what we do there, we get a little insight that this this, uh, jar of ointment was worth potentially more than 300 denarii. Now, do you realize how valuable that is? Okay, I've mentioned before how a single denarius, one denarius was a day's wage for a laborer so 300 denarii would have been about a year's wages for a laborer now I know that it's 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 very difficult to translate monetary value across centuries and locations so I'm not really attempting to do that I'm just trying to get you to appreciate how scandalous the cost of this sacrifice was okay I was la- last night I punched in on my phone uh, most expensive perfumes in the world and uh, uh, found one that what w- was uh, said. I hope, hope this hope this isn't a hoax I hope this is a le- legitimate website it said that uh, the one particular perfume, four four thousand two hundred U.S. dollars per ounce. Now, John John uh, seems to recount this same anointing in I think it's John chapter twelve, and he mentions that the amount of nard was uh, one litra, which is eleven and a half ounces. You know. Now think about that, uh, 11 and a half ounces of this $4,200 per ounce perfume would be about $48,000. Can, ima- can you imagine? Can you imagine having a, a bottle of perfume worth a year's wages, say $48,000? Can you imagine, imagine having a, a jar of ointment worth over 300 denarii, a year's wages. This is of extreme value. This is is not like you go to the the shelf and pull down a $20 bottle of olive oil or a $20 bottle of ointment or a $20 bottle of perfume. It's not like that. This is high-end stuff. Now, we we don't know how she came into the possession of it. Some, some uh, commentators suggested that it might have been a family heirloom that was passed down from one generation to the next. Perhaps. We don't know. But here's the thing. It was really costly, and everyone knew it. And she takes, she takes this, this jar, this flask, and she breaks it. She, she, she's not, she, you know, she's not, like, getting out just a little dab of the stuff, you know. She breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. And at least some of the people at the dinner party are deeply disturbed and distressed by what seems to them something very, wasteful in one fleeting moment a year's worth of wages represented in this jar of ointment is poured out and forever gone never to be recovered again flowing down the lord jesus christ and so they were the the it says Mark says that some of the people there were indignant. We know from Matthew's account of this same episode that the disciples were among the some who were indignant. Okay. So the so of course J- Judas was treacherous, but the other disciples who were who were truly disciples and friends of Jesus, they and other other dinner party guests were indignant, outraged, and they say in verse 4, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Remember what I said last week about how in view of the Lord's coming to judge his people at the end of history you need to have one primary question in in view and that is is it pleasing to the lord the lord's assessment is the only assessment that matters they scolded her and remember they they are not the enemies of verses 1 and 2 or the traitor of verses 10 and 11 although Judas was was part of this but Uh, at this point he would have been there as John tells us but most of the people most of the people who were scolding her were disciples were friends and supporters of Jesus they scolded her but their assessment doesn't matter only Jesus's assessment matters and he comes to her defense Jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her she has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them let's 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 pause right there the problem with the way that these people the ones who were scolding the woman the problem with the way that they were thinking is not that they valued ministry to the poor Now, how we should minister to the poor is a source of great political division in our country. However, for Bible-believing Christians, that we should minister to the poor should not be a controversial issue. In in fact, uh, Jesus' words, for you always have the poor with you, Echoes Deuteronomy 15.11 which says let me turn there Deuteronomy 15.11 says for there will never cease to be poor in the land therefore I command you you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land in fact at least one commentator called attention to the fact that back in Mark chapter 10 What did did Jesus say to the rich man? Sell all that you have and give to the poor. It's a good thing. Just just considered as as an independent action, selling a jar of ointment worth a, a year's wages, selling it and giving it to the poor, it's a good thing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that one of the primary ways that we demonstrate love for him is by loving his poor, suffering, persecuted, needy people. So loving the poor for Jesus' sake is a biblical duty and and privilege, and yet, if you go back to that instruction in Mark chapter 10 about sell everything that you have and give to the poor, even though that's an important part of Jesus' instruction to the rich man, it's not the primary thing. The primary thing is, and come follow me. So Jesus says, You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. You, 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 you have a heart for the poor. Live it. Live it. Daily. Opportunities abound to care for the afflicted. So, I want you to think about this because we, we haven't gotten to the heart of this passage yet. I'm kind of holding it off till the end. The disciples and the other house guests who were critical of the woman, they rightly estimated the value of the ointment. And they rightly valued ministry to the poor. So far, so good. Here's the problem. There are two very important things that they did not rightly value. And here's here's what they are. Number one, they did not rightly value the moment. And number two, and most centrally, they did not rightly value the Lord. But let's start with rightly valuing the moment. Jesus says in verse 8, I'm sorry, Jesus says at the end of verse 7, after saying, you always have the poor with you, he ends verse 7 by saying, but you will not always have me. He, he, he's referring to his physical presence. His, his presence physically on the earth is drawing to an end. In just a few days, he is going to be crucified, buried, dead. He will rise again. And after spending... 40 days off and on with his disciples, he will ascend into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the the Father and he will be physically absent from his people until he returns. This woman seized a moment when she was in the presence, the physical presence of the Lord and she took advantage of that moment to demonstrate her devotion and to honor the Lord. But even more importantly than rightly valuing the moment is rightly valuing the Lord. It says in verse 8, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Isn't it, isn't it remarkable? The, these disciples and other people there, they, they valued the, the ointment and they valued the poor, but they didn't see Jesus as worthy of the woman's costly sacrifice. It didn't make sense to them. But the woman, the woman, saw the lord jesus she knew him i don't know how much she understood at this point but she must have known that he's the messiah he 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 had he had come and not long ago he raised lazarus from the dead maybe he maybe she had heard from martha what the lord had told to martha that I am the resurrection and the life. And, and for her, it wasn't about some careful calculation of the value of the ointment and calculating its potential pragmatic uses. She had it. And she did what she could. And she opened up heart, she opened up her resources and she laid them out before the Lord in a wonderful act of worship. Because Jesus Christ is worth everything. He's worth more than the poor. And His body it says uh, she, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial I, I i i'm not i'm not sure that the woman herself understood her action in that way but jesus at the very least jesus ascribed anointing significance to her action because his body pursued by Judas and the religious leaders to arrest him and kill him. His body he was offering in sacrifice for the life of the world. And it's remarkable to me that in the midst of all that's going on with the plot to kill Jesus and the disciples again demonstrating Immaturity in their outlook, and Jesus knowing that He Himself in just a few short days is going to be dead and buried. Jesus sees beyond all that, and He sees gospel, He sees good news. He says in verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus knows how the story ends. The plotters and schemers and traitors are not ultimately successful. And though Jesus will die and he will stay dead as evidenced by his burial in a tomb, he will not stay dead for long. And on the third day, he will walk out of death and bring immortality and eternal life to light for all who believe in him. And so Jesus sees beyond the plot and the treachery and the immaturity and he sees the gospel, the good news that his sacrifice will pay for the sins of the world and will gather together all of his people globally from all over the world. And he says that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done this woman's beautiful act of devotion, that story is going to travel with the gospel message all over the world. And one, one, one demonstration of that reality is the fact that Mark wrote it down, and Matthew wrote it down, and John wrote it down. Not- wrote it down, and wherever the gospel of Mark has been translated, and the gospel of Matthew has been translated, and the gospel of John has been translated, proclaiming the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ, they learn about this woman's beautiful act of devotion. And, and I want to ask the question, why? Why? Why, why is it fitting for this woman's costly act of devotion? Why is it fitting that it be told and retold all over the world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed? And I think there are at least two answers to that question. Number one, what she did is bound up with the facts of the gospel the facts of the gospel. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 recounts the bottom line facts of the gospel when he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. The, The burial of Jesus is part of the proclamation of the gospel. And so someone might ask, after that shameful death, was he honored with an anointing? Did they come and anoint and embalm his body? How would you answer that question? You, 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 you could point to the women who came to the tomb on the first day of the week. And they came with their spo- spices and ointments to anoint the body of Jesus. And the body of Jesus wasn't there because he was risen. You could point to Nicodemus, who, who worked alongside Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus died and, and had all, all kinds of, of spices to wrap Jesus in. But then this woman, she anointed Jesus beforehand. Usually you anoint a dead body after it's dead. She anointed the Lord for burial while he was still alive. She did it beforehand. So what she did is bound up with the facts of the gospel. But there may be another reason why this woman's sacrificial act of devotion is to be told and retold alongside the preaching of the gospel. And I would put it like this. Her extravagant devotion reflects the infinite worth of Jesus and the infinite value of his sacrifice. You see, this is what the gospel is all about. This woman's sacrifice does not give value to the gospel. It is the value of the gospel that gives meaning and value to her sacrifice. Because the gospel is about the beloved Son who gave everything in order to redeem His people. Paul, the Apostle Paul, told us in his letter to the Philippians that we should conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is worthy of the gospel of Christ? What is worthy of the Lord's generosity what is worthy of the Lord's sacrifice what is worthy of the Lord's resolve to pay your debts in full what is worthy of him laying down his life for the redemption of his people what is worthy of that is sacrifice generosity service Self-giving love. There, there, is, there is something that is obviously unrepeatable about what this woman did. Because Jesus said, you don't always have me. There, there's something about the Lord's physical presence that contributed to making this such a special act of worship. And you can't duplicate that. But what you can duplicate, replicate in your own way, as opportunities allow, is that you can take what you have. You can offer what you have, who you are, your gifts, your resources, and you can lay them, as it were, at the master's feet, and you can be poured out, as Jesus said about we're supposed to lose our lives for Jesus' sake and the Gospels, that, doing that. Helping, serving, sacrificing, giving. That is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set before us today... A commendable, praiseworthy act of devotion that reflects the beauty and the worth and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all of us that we would be so overwhelmed by the self giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be compelled to give all that we have for his sake, to advance his kingdom and to honor his name. Father, I pray that you would stir us up and renew us and revive us by your gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.